0: Welcome to Dicta, Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's podcast on all things law and tax with me, Rachel Sherlock
1: and me, Gráinne McMahon.
0: The pandemic has forced many of us to look at the way we work, with working from home and hybrid working becoming a reality for many. Presenting opportunities and challenges as we emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, the world of work has fundamentally changed. But are you ready for it and how do you navigate through 21st century working? Well, today's guest is Joe Owen, author of Smart Work, The Ultimate Handbook for Remote and Hybrid Teams, published by Bloomsbury Business. Joe is the founder of eight NGOs with a combined turnover of 100 million pounds per annum and is an author and keynote speaker on leadership and the mindset of success. He shares tips and advice on motivation, avoiding the doom of Zoom, and setting yourself up for success in the new way of working.
1: Joe, we're delighted to have you here with us today, and thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Um, As you know, many law and tax practitioners have had a challenging two years or so with the new way of working. But is it the case that it's not a temporary shift? Like you're saying in your book, it's a paradigm shift, and the future belongs to those who make the transition successfully.
2: Look, the, the pandemic has been very traumatic for a lot of people. Uh, but just from the point of view of leadership and management, it's possibly the best thing to have happened to leadership and management. And in years to come, we'll look at uh, management before the pandemic and management after the pandemic, and they will be fundamentally different. The world has changed, and the world belongs to hybrid working. So uh, work is no longer a place that you go to. It is what you do, and you can do it from from anywhere. And what we're seeing right around the world is that employees now expect to have some form of hybrid working if they're able to. Obviously, if you're um, a frontline worker, that's not possible. But if you are someone who used to be a sort of office-based worker, about 80% say they want hybrid working. There are about 10% at either extreme who say... So they want to be in the office all the time, or they want to be out of the office um, all the time. And those groups at the extremes tend to have quite uh, distinct characteristics or special reasons for saying so. But, but overwhelmingly, staff are saying they want hybrid working. And actually, employee employers are now responding uh, by saying, in in vast majority of cases, that they will accommodate that and they will shift to hybrid working. So, yeah, the, the world of um, five days a week in, in the office is going. There will be a few holdouts inevitably, uh, but but they will crumble in the wake of uh, employee demands and in the in in fighting the war for talent.
1: Joe, I suppose none of us probably saw COVID coming, but. You know, for for what in one way it's been brilliant for people who wanted this way of life, but it's a big change for a lot of employers, particularly um, small employers who kind of are set in their ways and they they want employees to fit into the nine to five in the office, etc. So, what would you say to them?
2: There are some employers, and I think some investment banks in particular who are mandating that all their staff need to come back into the office all the time. My message to them is they can win the battle, but they will lose the war. So the battle is, can they get all their staff back into the office? Yes, they can, either by coercion or bribing them with free lunches and free yoga lessons and all that kind of good stuff. So in the short term, the employers can make employees do what the employer wants. But in the long term, they will lose the war for talent because there is a war for talent out there. And if all the talented people want a balanced lifestyle where they're in the office some of the time and at home some of the time, then new employees will vote with their feet and will go to the employers that um, give them what they want. And over time, existing employees will also vote with their feet and and go to where uh, employers give them the right sort of um, work-life balance and and working arrangements. So, yeah, look, if you're an employer, you can force people back. There's no doubt about it. But if you're smart and you want to win the war for talent talent and get the best talent, you've got to move with the times. And the times have clearly moved in favor of, of hybrid working. And let's be clear, that is hybrid working. It is not all remote working. So the office is not dead. The office is still absolutely vital. We will continue to use it, but we'll use it less but better in future.
0: I, I guess the follow-on question from that is then: with the kind of changing relationship between um, office workers and, and in hybrid working, in terms of building relationships, how do we go forward with that in, in office teams?
2: So. One of the reasons that that the office is not dead is because it is vital for building relationships and in particular for building trust and for uh, building the culture, the common values, and for motivation. Okay, So all of these things tend to happen in the office, not remotely. Uh, You cannot build trust remotely. um, And quality of communication tends to improve with the quality of trust. So those two things go together very closely. Um, and if you have poor trust, you end up with poor communication. So a classic example was, I was talking to a very senior executive of a global search firm. And uh, she'd come from America, gone to Paris uh, to try and sort out a, a lot of difficulties with the team there because they hadn't really been getting on together very well. And she got stuck in Paris because of an air traffic controller's strike and found that she had to go to London in a very un American way by train, okay, which shocked her a little bit. Uh, so she got on the train with four or five of her colleagues that you know, they hadn't been getting on well together, they hadn't been communicating, etc. And by the end of the train journey, by the time they got off at uh, St Pancras, she said it was like a miracle. Suddenly, they all knew each other far better they trusted each other and for for months after in fact thereafter the quality of communication between them went up dramatically so there are some things and that was entirely predictable okay so even before smart work my research on global teams showed that the only way to build trust is to get even a global team together because those shared experiences are vital to building that personal trust, which un- underpins professional respect and professional trust as well. So get into the office. Uh, if you can't get into the office, find an excuse to have some form of a way day, a strategy day, a training day, or whatever it is. And, but don't fill the day all with business stuff. Make sure there is time for the personal stuff as well, because those personal relationships uh, really, really matter.
1: Uh, Joe, I really enjoyed your book, and congratulations on it. I know it came out on the sixteenth of September. And um, one of the key things in the book is ramp, and I wanted to ask you about that without giving away too much of the book. But just if you could, you know, when we're talking about relationships of trust and building those, would you be able to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So, so look, we found there are probably four keys to making hybrid working work, which health warning came up coming up inevitably comes with an acronym which you alluded to or ramp which stands for supportive relationships a for autonomy and accountability m for mastery and growth and p for purpose and let's just touch on each of those because they come to that like when you hear it, it's like yeah, yeah yeah that's obvious move on but these things are obvious at one level, but actually not at another level. So supportive relationships. Well, everyone says, yes, yes, of course, supportive relationships. Actually, that's a sea change, because the old paradigm actually has been around command and control, uh, however much we like to say otherwise. The office was actually a paradise for control freak managers, because you could interfere, sorry, help your team at will, whether they wanted the help or not um because yeah, they were there in front of you you can't be a control freak manager when you don't even know what your team is wearing beneath the waist Uh, you can't see them you can't hear them shock horror you've actually got to trust your team to do the right thing while you're not looking and hearing and seeing what they do that is a massive massive change so we're moving from a world of command and control to trust and influence In which you have to be able to support your team because the team needs support when people are working remotely it's very easy for them to to get burnt out stress out and drop out so again yeah this this changes the paradigm and it's not just you supporting the team you've got to help the team support each other as well you've got to put in those peer peer networks so it's a very different way of thinking about things autonomy and accountability look yeah, professionals hate being micromanaged. They probably think that they can do your job better than you can if they think your job is relevant anyway. So, in the past, managers had to make things happen through people they controlled, okay? Nice simple world. In this new world, you as a manager have to make things happen through people you don't control in other words, suppliers and customers and people in other departments or through people who don't want to be controlled. In other words, professionals. So that changes everything. So that's the world of autonomy. Now, the good news is, and the bad news, is accountability. Because accountability actually marches hand in hand with autonomy. Professionals crave autonomy. They actually shy away from accountability. They don't like being held to account. But you then turn that around and say to professionals, "Okay, so if you don't want accountability, do you like completely ambiguity? where you're unsure of your goals, unsure of what you're meant to achieve, and suddenly the professionals go into a complete panic. Professionals hate ambiguity. So actually the 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 obverse of uh, that is to create clarity and certainty around what they're meant to do and achieve. Hello, that's called accountability. So ambiguity and accountability, yeah, those two, sorry, autonomy and accountability are really important for um, remote working. You're forced into autonomy when people are working remotely, but accountability, clarity absolutely has to go with it. Mastery is important. Look, mastering growth. We can't be motivated if we haven't got the skills to do the job and we're not growing to acquire the skills we want for the job that we want next. So mastery and growth are absolutely vital. Um, firms all say, yes, yes, all very important. But then what you find is the first thing that gets cut in a budget squeeze is training. You go, oh, well, fine. So how important is mastering growth then? And in practice, mastering growth is not about formal training. It's about the informal training and everyone learning their uh, personal secret source of success about this is what works for me in my context. Now, that, unfortunately, is a random walk of experience. You bump, you know, bump into good role model, models, bosses, and experiences. You sort of accelerate your career. You bump into bad bosses, role models, and experiences, in, and you land up in a career dead end. So, actually, if if you're smart as an organisation, what you do is you put in systems that enable people to learn informally, learn their personal uh, secret formula in a structured way. So it's not a random walk; it is a structured journey of discovery for them. And finally, purpose look. If you don't have a sense of purpose, you've got to have a sense of personal purpose. You have to craft your own job. You have to think of your own job and think, well, what, what is the benefit that I'm delivering? And Once you understand the benefit that you're delivering, even if you're someone who's cutting code in the bowels of the risk organisation, you'll suddenly think, actually, I'm not just sort of cutting code um for an organization that's hated for a function that's hated in within that organization, I'm doing something of real national importance and I've got to get this right okay? So yeah think carefully about your job and you'll probably discover it is important it is making a difference to people and if you understand that, then even the the routine drudgery that every job involves at some point, even that has has meaning. You know, get those four things in place, and you are well on the way to having a successful hybrid uh, working environment.
0: Now that's wonderful, and I think I was just when you were talking there, I was reminded how the accountability, the purpose, all of those things are really tied up with with motivation. And I think that was something that you said. Um, is, again, quite different in a hybrid setting and in a remote setting. And maybe you can just talk a little bit about...
2: Yeah, motivation is really tough. So um, I'm going to give you two bits on this. Uh, First of all, within the office, you remember the old days in the office, uh, my research on on leaders showed that um, motivation is ranked as being very important as a leadership quality. And 67% of leaders... Think they're good at motivation? Fine. I then asked the team members how well they think their bosses do at motivation, and the answer came back: thirty-two percent reckon that their bosses are any good at motivation. So even within the office, there is a massive motivation gap between what bosses think they do and what teams uh, think their bosses actually achieve. We know that motivating remotely is far, far harder. The first person. To work out how to motivate by email will make a fortune. And it's a fortune that's unlikely to be made. So the challenge for bosses is how do you motivate people by uh, remotely? My very simple response is: your job is not to motivate your team. So your job is not to be motivational and inspirational and stand on your desk at the end of the week and deliver a motivational speech and to go rah-rah rah during the week. That doesn't work. Okay, um, and and furthermore, it puts completely unrealistic expectations on what a manager can or cannot do. Instead, what you as a manager have to think about doing, and you as a management team have to think about doing, is putting in the conditions under which people will rediscover their intrinsic motivation. Okay, because you cannot tell people to be motivated, to be positive, or to be happy. These things come from within. So all you can do is create the conditions under which people rediscover their intrinsic motivation. And in fact, the four conditions for intrinsic motivation are, again, ramp, supportive relationships, autonomy and accountability, mastery and growth, and purpose. And if someone has those four things, they're going to feel highly motivated and a highly motivated team is usually a high-performing team as well. And it also tends to be a team which has high resilience because they will overcome all those obstacles uh, that inevitably come up relatively easily, whereas a low-motivated team will have low resilience and low performance. Um, so, So your job is not to motivate directly, but it's to put in the conditions Under which your team will rediscover their intrinsic motivation and believe me all professionals all professionals have pride in what they do and they want to do a good job so let them do a good job which which instantly goes back to the autonomy thing if you want to manage the way to manage a good professional is to manage them less because they want to overachieve they want to over deliver they want to do a good job so step back and let them, and the chances are they will go, go through hell and high water to do well for you. And that leads to a huge challenge with remote working because when the professional is in the office, they can always check about you know, what does good look like? What are the real expectations uh, involved in this piece of work? What is enough? Okay, So they've always got that sort of safety valve where they can make sure that they can contain their work to what is actually needed. When they're working from home, they're unable to have those constant checks and discussions. So, being professionals, they tend to want to over-deliver and over-achieve, which means that they are working far too hard and delivering far too much, sort of gold-plating everything, which is partly why so many professionals are feeling stressed and burnt out from working from home because they're kind of over egging everything they do which of course then goes back to the accountability point which is where there is ambiguity around what they're meant to achieve they tend to overachieve whereas if they can have clarity about what they're meant to achieve the high accountability and low low ambiguity then suddenly they can relax and focus much more clearly on what they're meant to do
0: I think that's spot on. And I suppose maybe then the thing that I wanted to move into is, I guess, some practical tips for people working from home, whether they're on the end of the spectrum of saying that they're overworking or maybe a bit paranoid, or maybe they're on the other end of the spectrum where they're homeschooling as well and they have other distractions and and trying to stay focused. So like just in terms of creating healthy and productive rhythms within the day.
2: When you work from home, you never leave work. So, there is no work life balance, and that's very stressful. So, you have to create boundaries between work and home. I've seen a couple of people do this in a very creative way when they were working 100% remotely. First thing in the morning, what they'd do is they'd leave their home, even during lockdown. They'd go for a walk around the block. And when they came back to their front door, that would now be the door to their office. And they'd go in and they'd be on and they'd be working. And then, at the end of the day, they'd put away all their work work stuff. So there's one person who was working at the end of her bed. And at the start of the day, she'd put a little rug out on the end of the bed. That's my sort of work area. And I'd, yeah, get her computer out. At the end of the day, she'd put the rug rug back and put the computer out out of sight and out of the way. She then left the flat, went for a walk around the block again. And when she came back through the front door, she was back home. All the work stuff was gone and she could relax create really clear boundaries between work and home now that doesn't work unless the whole team makes it work because if you're now if you get back to your home and suddenly you're getting an urgent call from your boss saying could you just i only need this just for tomorrow morning bang goes whole work-life balance so as a team you need to agree what the rules of engagement are, you need to create a little team charter. Now, when you're in the office, you don't need to do that, because it's very obvious what the rules of engagement are. You just assume it by osmosis. It all happens. Everyone kind of knows how it works. But when you're working remotely, you don't have that process of discovery. So you have to be much more purposeful and deliberate. And you have to recreate that process of discovery. So hold a little workshop. Some people call it a methods adoption workshop or whatever it is where you ask all the questions about how do we want to work together? And one of the critical questions are, what are our core working hours? So let me give you an example. One team came up with core working hours of 10 till 3. And you can well, that doesn't sound like very much. But during those hours, everyone was available for Zoom calls and everything. So it tended to be really full on. And then the other working hours for most of the team members were 7 till 8 o'clock in the morning and 8 till 10 o'clock in the evening. And you can well, that. That, that's all a bit bizarre, isn't it? What was going on was you know, a lot of those team members had caring responsibilities, especially children. So what they'd done was to say, right, 8 till 10, I can be you know, sorting out the children, going to school and all that. And again, 3 till 8, I can be having family time. And I do the work at other times as well. Okay, But once again, what that does is everyone on the team has agreed what they're Their common working hours are when they're going to be available for Zoom, when they're going to be available to answer instant messaging and emails and all that. And suddenly the work-life balance comes back into play. So create those boundaries, both individually and as a team, and then stick to them. And as a manager, you've got to role model that as well. So another tip is to be really clear about what you're meant to achieve every day so that you don't have that crushing ambiguity that that can be really, really difficult to deal with. And once you're clear about what you're meant to do during the day, do short interval scheduling. Set yourself a goal for the next 20 minutes, 30 minutes, maybe 40 minutes, and don't allow any any distractions during that time. Once you've done that 20, 30, 40-minute sprint really focused, Then you can say, Right, I'll give myself a break. I'll go and make a cup of tea. I'll have a biscuit. I'll go and talk to the dog. I'll go and get onto social media for five, ten minutes. So, again, it's creating little boundaries and breaks during the day so that you can stay refreshed. But also, when you're working, you work and you stay focused and you achieve something. As a team, you can help that. So, here's what you can do as a team at the start of every day, hold A YTB meeting, what's that, right? It's a meeting where each team member has 90 seconds, no, if you're generous, two minutes, to say three things, YTB. This is what I did yesterday, Y. This is what I'm going to do today, T. And here are the blockers that I'm facing today. This is where I need help, right? So very quickly at the start of the day, everyone knows what everyone else is doing and so an awful lot of that noisy communication that happens during the day saying oh could you just remind me oh, what are you doing about this are you doing that uh, who's doing this who's responsible for that?" all that noise has gone because and, and all those interruptions have gone it's because everyone knows what everyone else is doing so that's the first benefit second benefit Each team member is really clear about what they've got to achieve. They've got that accountability. They haven't got ambiguity. They've got clear accountability for what they're going to do. And so they can organise their day and they can stay focused. That's great. And the team manager is now in a wonderful position because she can now go, she's got an accountability mechanism. She can check, has everyone done yesterday what they said they were going to do yesterday? Are they doing today what I think they need to be doing today or do I need to amend that? And thirdly, she knows where she needs to invest her time to help and support team members because she knows where all those blockers are. So something as simple as that YTB meeting, a very short, sharp, crisp meeting at the start of the day, gets everyone off to a flying start. And you can sort of manage the day much, much better.
1: Can we ask about Zooms? And you go on about the doom of Zoom. And I think a lot of people have been kind of finding these online meetings that tr- sometimes drain your energy and you've no time for anything else. So would you have any tips on that?
2: Yeah, OK. So the Zoom, I'm going to give you three tips, not one. Tip one, boundaries. The reason Doom by Zoom happens is because we go straight from one Zoom meeting to another. You, you can't do that. You just get wrecked. So if we go back to the godfather of time and motion studies, Frederick Taylor, who, who was the enemy number of one of the workers, because all he wanted to do was absolutely maximise the amount of work that each worker could do in every, every shift, and he uh, achieved transformational stuff. But even he, even he insisted that workers rest for five minutes every hour, even if they weren't feeling tired. And he wasn't trying to be nice to the workers, so you can rest assured of that he's making a very cold calculation that people are more productive if they rest for five minutes every hour. And that's as true of of intellectual work as it is of manual work. So build those breaks in. And what we've discovered is that those breaks are really, really important in the office. Because if you look at what happens in the office, you often think you're scheduled in back-to-back meetings. But actually, the meetings don't happen back-to-back. You've always got five or 10 minutes between each meeting when you rush from one meeting room to another. And in that time, you decompress from the last meeting. You might go to the restroom. You might nobble someone in the corridor who just wanted to nobble about something quite important. You get a quick cup of coffee, and you might just be able to nobble someone else before the next meeting about an agenda item. And you've got that moment to think about how you want to handle the next meeting. So, those five or 10 frictional minutes between meetings aren't actually lost time. They are incredibly valuable time and well used time. So, what I've now seen is quite a few firms are banning one hour and a half hour meetings on Zoom. They're saying your meetings must either be 25 minutes or 50 minutes. And if you can't achieve in 50 minutes what you think you needed to do in an hour, you're probably being inefficient anyway. So they're recreating that frictional time between meetings that is actually very, very valuable. So, one simple tip boundaries and 25 minute and 30 uh, sorry, 25 minute and 50 minute meetings. Second tip on Zoom, it's a lot harder to have the cut and thrust and general banter of a meeting. So, if you want to intervene, you have to intervene with purpose, and with effect. So you can't leave these things to chance. That means that when you have a Zoom meeting, take time to prepare it properly. Look through the agenda and be very clear about where you want to intervene, why you want to intervene, and how you're going to do it. So don't just sort of get in there and hope for the best, because hoping to get lucky, hope it, hope is not a strategy and luck is not a method. Plan out each meeting very, very carefully. As with all things remote, you have to be more purposeful and more deliberate than when you are in the office. Third thing, and this is going to be a case of do as I say, not do as I do. Okay? I have a blank background to my Zoom because most of the time I am presenting and I don't want people. Thinking, why has he got a spear behind his head? Yeah, you know, I, I want them to be focusing on, on the substance. But on Zoom, you have a chance to do something quite surprising. You can invite people into your home. You can make Zoom quite personal. So curate your background. I I just got off a call yesterday with someone who had a psychedelic giraffe in the background. Well, of course, I had to ask about the psychedelic giraffe. I've never met him before. And after we talk about sure after we talk about all sorts of other things, and basically we landed up talking about ourselves, disclosing a lot about ourselves. And that's a great way of getting to know each other. And that personal getting to know each other is really important, especially in first meetings when you don't know each other. And your background is a wonderful way of inviting people into your home. It's a curated background, so you only disclose what you want to disclose, okay? So it's safe. And of course, as you disclose something about yourself, they'll disclose something about themselves. And I was talking to another chief executive. It's a sad story. She's saying, yeah, during lockdown, I, yeah, I unsurprisingly have had to fire some people. I said, I find it far harder to hire people, fire people when i when i see they're in their home okay so that personal stuff does really make a difference okay so curate your background make it personal and that's actually as close as you're going to get to sort of building relationships and building trust uh, remotely so it's a nice little tip so what was that think boundaries tip one 25 and 30 minute meetings. Um, be very purposeful and deliberate about how you're gonna to contribute to each meeting. Don't hope to get lucky. Hope it's not a method, luck is not a strategy. And thirdly, uh, invite people into your home, curate your background, make it personal so that you can build those relationships.
0: I think that's really really great and I think I think everyone is is united in feeling almost 2 years into the pandemic that we all need to know how to do Zoom better and how to conduct meetings better. I guess I just wanted to have a final question that kind of moves away from that and back into some of the things we were discussing earlier which is just um I guess the shift in in leadership and what does it mean to be a good leader and how is that different to uh, being a, a manager or, or or a boss, and and what the the change in COVID nineteen has brought to
2: leadership. Okay, so there are two different questions in there. Let, let me tackle both. There's the old one of leadership versus management, which I think is an important question. And there are lots of people who write about leadership and talk about leadership, and then you say, well, what is leadership? And they go, well, I I don't know. <laughs> it's a little bit disturbing. So the only good definition I have come across about leadership comes from Henry Kissinger, the uh, US Secretary of State during the Vietnam War. And he said, uh, leaders take people where they would not have got got by themselves. And my first reaction was, well, that's really boring. Move on. But this Henry Kissinger, so you know that it's devious and you know there's something more in there. So I thought about it and actually it's brilliant leaders take people where they would not have got by themselves so that means there are plenty of people in leadership positions with grand titles like chief executive or prime minister or president who aren't leading they're simply administering a legacy that they inherited and pretty much you know the the organization is going where it would have got anyway more or less okay whereas there are plenty of people lower in the organization who really are dramatically taking their team in a new direction, changing things, innovating like crazy. They're leaders. So leadership is not about your title. Leadership is about what you do. And that's liberating because what it says is that anyone can lead, right? Anyone can lead at any position. If you're taking uh, people, if you're taking your team, where it would not have got by itself. So we talked about management. Traditionally, their job was to make things happen through people they controlled. So traditionally, the job of the manager was to uh, transmit orders down and transmit uh, the the hierarchy and transmit information back up the hierarchy. Well, the information has been liberated, so that bit of the manager's job is gone, uh, but still they're trying to transmit orders down, making things happen through people they control. But now what we've discovered during the pandemic is that they no longer uh, control those people. It's much harder to control people when you can't see them or hear them. So that's changed the rules of the game. And I think what we've seen in the pandemic are three big changes for leadership and management. First, we have discovered just how much change can be achieved by individuals and institutions. If you go back to the time before the pandemic, we were all congratulating ourselves on how fast we were changing and moving to the digital world, okay? We now look back on that, and it was a walk in the park. It was a stroll in the park compared to what was achieved in one weekend in March last year. In one weekend, the old rule book about how work was organized and how work got delivered was ripped up and the next week we were working in a completely different way so that's how fast and how far we can change if we want to so the challenge for managers now is are you going to sustain that pace of change or are you going to quietly go back into the comfort zone of slow and incremental change that happened before the pandemic But the problem with uh, comfort zones is they very quickly become uncomfortable when the rest of the world is changing and charging ahead. So leaders now have this real, real challenge. What do you need to change? What are the other assumptions about work that you should be challenging and changing? How do you change them? Because you've got staff who probably are a bit stressed and a bit burnt out at the moment, and probably aren't ready for yet more radical change. So this is where, as a leader, you're really going to start earning, earning your crust. And it's a big challenge and big opportunity. Some will step up, others won't. So that's the first cha- uh, big change, challenge, change. But the the second change is that we've discovered that everything is far harder. Managing is far harder on a remote team. Um, so the stakes have been raised dramatically. And managers have to be far more purposeful and deliberate about everything they do. That's good news because if it means manager the quality of management has to rise, that's you know, everyone benefits. Again, some managers will rise to the challenges, others won't. Um, when I say everything is harder, we talked about motivation uh, being far harder earlier. Let me give you one other example goal setting now goal setting is like well that's management 101 how how hard can that be surely you know we all know how to do that and we do but what we've discovered in the office is how goals are set If it's a significant goal you don't just say well do this and it's all happens there's a discussion that then starts up and it's that discussion is a process of discovery not just about the what of the goal, but the why and the context. So why is this important? Who wants it? What were the options? How are we going to do this? How does this sit with my other priorities? Are there other ways we could do it? There's a whole long discussion, series of discussions that happen in which the real nature of that goal and how it's going to be delivered is unveiled. And that process of discovery is really important for both blowing away the ambiguity of the goal and creating clear accountability, but also creating a sense of ownership around that goal. Now, when you try and do that online, that process of ad hoc discovery, it doesn't happen. You can convey the what of the goal very, very easily. I mean, that, in fact, any numpty can do that. Right? But conveying the why and the context and creating that process Process of discovery is far far harder, and your challenge as a manager is your team aren't mind readers. Yet you have probably already gone through that process of discovery. You've understood it. You've internalized it. But because your team aren't mind readers, they can't they can't internalize it unless you go through that slightly messy process of discovery. So that's a simple example of how everything on a remote team is far harder and as managers you have to be far more purposeful and deliberate about how you manage and the office is a very forgiving place for mediocre management if you make a mistake in the office it's very easy to spot that you've made a mistake and you can normally resolve it very fast if you make a mistake remotely you probably won't even hear that you've made a mistake for the next 24 or 48 hours, by which time, yeah, that that error has probably blown up out of all proportion. Okay, so it, it's it's much slower to spot that you've made a mistake, and it's much harder to fix. So again, yeah, the skills bar has been raised. So the first, to uh, challenge change. Second, is everything is harder, and that's good news. The third change we've alluded to before which is, uh, this my favorite. The pandemic has put another nail in the coffin of command and control. Uh, The office was a paradise for control freak managers because they could interfere at will. Uh, You can't interfere at will when all your team is remote. It's much harder to do that. So you have to find ways of trusting your team to do the right thing even when you can't see them and even when you can't hear them. and That is an entirely new world in which managers have to learn a new set of skills which aren't command and control. The new set of skills are around trust and influence. And that's liberating because in the world of command and control, your power is uh, constrained by your budget and your span of control. In the new world, of trust and influence your your formal power may still be constrained by a span of control and and uh budget but actually your informal power is 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 as big as you want to make it it is as big as your network of trust as in, and influence uh becomes so those that means that managers now have to learn not only a higher set of, they not only have to improve their existing skill set you know motivation goal setting uh, workload management etc they also have to learn a new skill set the 21st century skill set of influence trust uh, and respect and once once leaders acquire that skill set it's great for them because their power is now unlimited and it's great for their teams as well uh, because teams tend to respond to that sort of management. Certainly professionals respond to that sort of management far better.
1: Joe, that's been really helpful. And I think we've learned so much um, today speaking to you. I I know personally, I've taken a lot from this, and I'm sure Rachel has also. So thank you for that. Before we go, though, Rachel would like to ask you some questions in our
0: quick fire roundup.
2: All right, here we go.
0: How have you survived lockdown?
2: Every morning... Sorry, I say running. This uh, that that is a disservice to runners. If I if I brag, I jog. In practice, if you think you have seen Quasimodo with a hangover, shambling around the park, that would be me jogging. But it is wonderful because you, you get outside, you see brilliant sunrises and all that kind of good stuff, and and suddenly you're set up for the day. So you know if. If you see Quasimodo with a hangover in the, hang the park, it would be nice as all I can say.
0: Um, top three things you would take to a desert island?
2: Well, number one, a fully functioning Royal Albert Hall. And so I could learn to play the organ there. I think I would be absolutely wonderful. I could go jogging around the, uh, the top there. So I think a fully functioning Royal Albert Hall would be a, a good start. What else would I take? If I was really cruel, I'd take my family with me. I'm not sure they'd appreciate that. <laughs> I know, that might, I they might really not appreciate that. And I suppose, you know, ultimately, what what I'd want is one of Elon Musk's spaceships, so that, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I could then go off and get get marooned on Mars or Moon in, 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 if I got forward to the desert island. So I have modest requests: a fully functioning Royal Alpha Hall, a spaceship, and my family, please. <laughs>
0: Sounds excellent. <laughs> um, uh, what is the current book you are reading?
2: Well, I, I hate to say this, but I, I keep on having to. I'm re- my nose is in this the whole time. Your uh, own book. So, ma- so many uh, uh, podcasts and webinars on it, that I, I have to keep on
0: uh, well, re- that makes sense.
2: referring to it. So. There we go. You <laughs> yeah. can tell it's on my desk the whole time.
0: and then uh the last time you had a good laugh
2: about uh, 15 seconds ago
0: (laughs) excellent and finally if you could choose another career what would it be
2: i'll go back to when i was eight years old because i I knew at that point what my career was going to be so i was going to be an steam engine driver, driver astronaut um world cup winning football player Film star
0: mm-hmm.
2: and prime minister all at the same time. So, so I think, yeah, I, I will let my inner eight-year-old uh, loose and say, well, of course, you know that that is what I should be. All of those things at the well, same time, please.
0: If you if you get stuck on that desert island, at least you can check your astronaut. At
2: <laughs> yeah, at least really the astronaut bit, so that will be all right
0: wonderful thanks so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure talking to
2: you all right
1: that's great thanks joe well that's it for another episode of obiter dicta thanks to joe own for joining us joe's book smart work the ultimate handbook for remote and hybrid teams published by bloomsbury business is out now and is available from bloomsbury.com all good bookshops and amazon we look forward to bringing you another episode very soon